Praise the Lord. I am Rajat and you are listening to Biblical Demand Podcast where we discuss and answer difficult questions raised against the Bible, God and the Christian faith. In the Gospel according to Apostle John chapter 8 verse 32, Jesus said, "And you shall know the truth and the truth shall set you free." Amen. So let's get started. Welcome to Biblical Demand and today our guest is Dr. Stephen Wellam. It's a joy to have you here, sir. Great to be with you. So let's begin with this story that uh, how did you come to know Jesus Christ? Yeah, glad to do that. Um I grew up in uh, in Canada. Uh so uh we have connections with the old British uh, Commonwealth, right? With uh you know India and Canada and so on. And uh I grew up in a Christian home. And uh that was a great great honor and privilege to have Christian parents who from you know right from I can remember, right? Would read me scripture and teach me about the Lord Jesus and and so on but uh just because you grow up in a christian home uh doesn't make you a christian uh you have to come to saving faith yourself in the lord jesus and repent of your sins and believe uh in him so uh at around 16 years old the lord was doing a work in my life convicting me that i i was a sinner that i stood under god's judgment that i was uh did not meet up to god's demand and standards that i had Uh, a fallen nature and a wicked heart and so uh, he brought me to the point of uh, giving me new life and bringing me to faith in Christ so that I turned from my sin and believed in the Lord Jesus and at 16 uh, I became a Christian and uh, from then desired to to serve the Lord in any capacity and, and that can be in a whole variety of areas but the Lord then uh, called me to Christian service to to serve him in churches and in education and in that area uh that's a bit of my background so uh 16 and on then being called to serve uh in Christian ministry and then preparing for that in terms of education and seminary training and and so on and then from there uh going to undergraduate education and then going to seminary at at a master's level in Chicago uh, Trinity Evangelical Divinity School Christian Seminary here uh, doing a master's degree doctorate and then pastoring uh, after that and then teaching uh, in in the late 90s and then coming to my present position at uh, the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary in 1999 so that's that's a little bit about how the Lord has worked in my life bringing me to himself and then using me in Christian service Wow praise god that's really nice to hear your story so uh, let me take you to the history of christianity and what is the council of nicaea and why it is important in the history of christianity yeah the council of nicaea it, it took place in in 325 uh, ad and uh, it's was it's considered the first um ecumenical council ecumenical meaning that it's the first council of the church right in the universal church now technically in in the new testament we have the council of jerusalem so in some sense that's the first council where the church was wrestling with the relationship of uh, old testament uh people of god to the new testament church so jew gentile um you know differences type of thing as people came to faith in christ and were brought into the church but as the apostles then uh, passed off the scene in the first century the church was then established in the roman empire it was you know a small lot it grew in the roman empire and 
as it grew, as the church grew and churches were established and even they faced persecution, uh, the church uh, has to grow in discipleship to uh, know the scriptures, to think properly about who God is and who the Lord Jesus is and what salvation is. And as they interacted with the society, the culture, right, they're defending the faith. And as they are discipling people within the church, questions arise as to how to make sense of who Jesus is and what he has accomplished for us, and particularly the relationship of uh, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And so at the Council of Nicaea, in light of uh, a false teaching or what we call a heresy that arose in the early church, there's a number of false teachings, but particularly Arianism. And Arianism was the view that uh, the that there's one true God, and the scripture teaches from beginning to end that there's only one true God, the creator and Lord of the universe, so that he alone is God and everything else is not, right? So we speak about the creator-creature distinction, right? So God alone is God uh, and everything else is creation. The Arians were you know, reflecting on what what is the relationship between this one true God and the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. So as we work through the Bible, right, we are presented with uh, the Lord, right, the creator and Lord, Yahweh, uh, who is the Father. And then, of course, the anticipation in the Old Testament of the coming of the Lord Jesus, the Son of God. And in the New Testament, obviously, the Son of God, the Lord Jesus, comes uh, in terms of the incarnation. And we'll, we'll talk about that uh, a little later. And then, of course, the work of the Spirit, who the Spirit is. And the Arians were affirming the one true God, yet... They were what we call Unitarian. So the Father alone is God. The Son, the Lord Jesus, is a created being. And in their view, he is the first created being. So he has even pre-existence. So he's exalted above any created thing, but he's still a creature. So he came to exist. So he is not eternal. He is not one with the Father, sharing the one divine nature. He is a created being. And then there it wasn't much talk about the Holy Spirit, but the Holy Spirit, again, was created or just simply a force or sort of the power of God type of thing, but was not a distinct, what we would say, person. And the Council of Nicaea was brought together. At that point in time, Constantine, uh, Christianity was the favored religion of the Roman Empire at that point in time. And, and it was sort of tearing apart some of the debates that were going on among the church and so the council was called in order to resolve these issues and the council of nicaea gives us to be really the formulation of the doctrine of the trinity so we have the affirmation that there is one true god who is father son and holy spirit and at nicaea the main focus was on the father son relationship and we mm -hmm. have then the language of Nicaea, where the Son of God is God equal with the Father. There's the affirmation of the Holy Spirit, but it's really not until 381 at the Council of Constantinople, where you get the full-blown, what we call today now, the Nicene Creed. So the Nicene Creed goes back to Nicaea, but it also includes for us today the later council at Constantinople 381. And out of that comes the full-blown teaching of the doctrine of the Trinity that comes right from Scripture. Uh, uh, scripture teaches the one true God who is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And, of course, the affirmation at Nicaea is of the deity 
of the Son of God, the deity of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, they're affirming this eternal Son, the one who is God the Son, is the one who also assumes or adds to himself a human nature, so the incarnation. Yet the Son is from eternity. He is not created. He is eternal with the Father and the Spirit, that there is the one true God who exists as uh, the Father, Son, and Spirit. So you think of Matthew 28, uh, Jesus will say, you know, baptize in the singular name of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So the one God is Father, Son, and Spirit. And that's what Nicaea is getting at with the doctrine of the Trinity. And with that, then the deity of the Son of God and the deity of the Holy Spirit. And that became more pronounced in 381, where we get the full-blown Nicene Creed. So that's really the issue. And today, we still have Aryans with us. Today, uh, more popularly, I mean, they can be Aryans of a variety of nature, but we often hear of Jehovah's Witnesses. I don't know Mm. if you have those uh, in, in India, you do. I mean, that would be a continuation of that kind of teaching. Now, of course, contemporary Jehovah's Witnesses add to it a whole lot of other things as well with prophecies and watchtower society and so on. But they affirm that there is Jehovah, which would be the father, and that the son, the Lord Jesus, then is a created being and the same with the Holy Spirit. You would also find uh, various what we call Unitarians and not Trinitarians. So Unitarians would just simply say there's one true God, which we also hold to monotheism, Yet within God, there is not a Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. They're just simply the Father or Jehovah or Yahweh. The Son and the Holy Spirit are created. So that's the significance of Nicaea. So really out of that gives us the full-blown teaching of the Trinity and the deity of the Son of God, the deity of the Lord Jesus. Wow, that's really interesting to know about this Council of Nicaea because many people have... uh have different stories in their minds that Council of Nicaea happened because Constantine, the emperor Constantine, want to uh, you know impose Christianity on people. But it's really nice to know the history that uh, it was the council to discuss the Trinity, the doctrine of Trinity and the deity of Christ. So you mentioned the, re, uh, the incarnation in, in your talk. So is the incarnation biblical? If it is biblical, then why not the reincarnation? We, why don't we read about the reincarnation as well? Yeah, yeah. Well, it's, it's, it's biblical. It's all I mean, very clearly the incarnation. And what we mean by the incarnation is that the eternal son of God, right? So we build on what we've just said, so that God is the one true God who is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. They are one in, and we use the language of the church. I mean, it, it comes early on through Greek and then over to Latin just simply because of the history of the Roman Empire, right? So Greek is the majority sort of sort of international language of the Roman Empire. Obviously, the Roman Empire encompassed many, many nations, or what we consider nations uh, today in terms of the Roman Empire, but Greek was sort of the universal language. And then Latin was the language of of the Eastern port or the Western portion of the Roman Empire with Rome. I mean, so they would speak Latin and then eventually went into what we now know today as, as Europe, right? So the Roman Empire went all the way up to to um, to England, and that would have all been Latin speaking, and that's why in Western Christianity you have a strong emphasis on Latin before uh, you know individual nations you know are picking up their languages and 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 so on. So in the language of the early church, we emphasize that God is one in 
being or one in nature or one in essence. And there's a variety of words that speak of that, yet he is uh, three in person. And so in the incarnation, we are affirming, uh, and scripture teaches this, we have this in John 1, for instance. So in John 1, verse 1, it begins with, in the beginning was the word. And the word is a title that the apostle John uses in the gospel of John, and in the letters of John, that's the only place that we find this in the New Testament, uh, where it's a title applied to Jesus. It's a, a title applied ultimately to the Son of God. So the, the Gospel of John makes this very clear. So in the beginning is the Word, and we could say in the beginning was the Son, the Son of God, the Son in relation to the Father. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God, and that emphasis on with means there's distinction so the father and the son are not the same they're the same in terms of their very nature but they are different in the language of the church is used as the word person so they are distinct in person so the father is the first person the son is the second person of the being of god or the godhead and the spirit is the third person so the beginning was the word, the word was with God, the word, the son is God, was God, right? So he shares the very same one divine nature, yet there's distinction of persons. And then we read a little bit later on in John's gospel, John 1.14, this word who is from eternity, who is face to face with the father. So there's a distinction yet who is God equal with the father, who is God. Uh, the word became flesh. And of course, that's the strongest passage there on the reality of the incarnation. What does it mean that he became flesh? What does John mean by flesh? Flesh just doesn't mean your skin. It doesn't just mean your body. In John, flesh would refer to he became human. Right. So we have to use in scripture, sometimes the apostle Paul can use the word flesh to refer to our humanness, but he can also refer it to our fallenness, right? That's not how John is using that term. So John, when he says the word became flesh, means he became human. What does it mean for him to become human? Well, he took to himself. So the word who's always, always existed, the eternal word, the eternal son, has now taken to himself what we would say a human body and a human soul. That would constitute what it means to be human, right? So each one of us, right, we are a physical, spiritual being in, in whole, right? And we, at death, will see a separation of body and soul, uh, but that's an abnormal state. And then in the resurrection, we are raised to be whole persons or whole individuals, again, that have a body and soul. So when the Son of God, uh, the Word becomes flesh, He takes to Himself a human nature or a human body and a human soul so later on in the history of the church we have the council of chalcedon or chalcedon in 451 that speaks about the incarnation that the son of god took to himself a body and what's called a rational soul right so that's so that's what it means for him to become flesh so that's incarnation he becomes enfleshed right he takes to himself a human nature it's not just a body it's not just a shell but he takes a body and a soul. So he would have then a human, um, and usually we tie with the soul, a human 
uh, thinking, human emotion, human will, human ability, right? So the Son of God takes to himself a human body, so he's able to, Luke 2.52, grow in wisdom, stature, and favor with God and man. He grows in stature. That means he grows physically. We have in the account of the of the Gospels, right? Two of the Gospels recount for us the conception of Christ. There's the supernatural conception by the Spirit in Mary. Uh, we say the Virgin Mary because she did not, uh, but she was betrothed to Joseph. They were married, but they did not have sexual relations. Matthew and Luke tell us until after Jesus was born. So there's a unique conception of Christ. Luke particularly lays that out where you have the unique coming upon the spirit. So the son of God takes to himself by the agency of the spirit of God, a human body and a human soul. That's the incarnation. And scripture then records, obviously, then the reality of that in the gospels, right? We see Jesus. He grows. He enters into life and ministry uh, at 30 years old. He eats. He sleeps. He gets tired. All of that speaks about a true humanity of Christ. He is also true deity, but we have a true humanity. And it's not reincarnation. Reincarnation would then say, well, uh, he's incarnate and then he loses that um, human nature. So it's gone off and then he reestablishes that human nature, right? He becomes now reinfleshed and maybe uh, some other form. I mean, depending on one's view of reincarnation, but it's not something that happens over and over again. Uh, scripture, I think, makes it very clear that this was a one-time act, right? So that this is utterly unique. You do not have incarnation in the Old Testament. We have appearances of God, but then they're always through created means. There's never an incarnation. The, the Old Testament anticipates the coming of the incarnation, the coming of Emmanuel in Isaiah 7, 14. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son, you shall name him Emmanuel, God with us. And of course, Matthew picks that up as well. But the incarnation is a one-time event, right? And even in Christ's death, the incarnation is never severed. So there will be a severing of body and soul, but the soul of Christ's human soul was always, always united to the person of the Son, to the second person of the Godhead, so that he always continued as human. He will continue forever as human. And part of the reason for that in Scripture is that he must uh, take our place. He must do what Adam failed to do. All the way from Genesis 3.15, there's the promise of, a, of another human, a seed of the woman who will come, who will undo the work of sin and death and defeat the power of, of Satan. And, and so the promise of this coming human, who is not merely human, he's also the divine son of God, but he must become human. He must keep the covenant for us. He must obey for us. He must live our life. He must die our death. And that incarnation now is permanent. So even now, as he, we see this in the book of Acts, right? He's in the end of the gospels, he's raised from the dead. Uh, he then ascends to heaven and he ascends and takes his glorified human nature with him. First Corinthians 15 will say uh, our, our future resurrection will be patterned after his human resurrection body, uh, his human resurrection state. So that tells us that the incarnation is permanent. It's not that he loses that incarnation and then becomes reincarnate again. It's a one time act that is now permanent so that forever 
he now is truly God, truly human, uh, our Redeemer who will uh, be the one that we see and dwell with uh, for eternity. So that's something of the incarnation. It's biblical grounding. So all the way from the Gospels, Matthew and Luke are describing the conception. Uh, we see Jesus in his full humanity uh, all the way through the Gospels, all the way through life, death, resurrection, ascension, taking his glorified humanity uh, to heaven with him. And he'll return with that. And the angels say you'll see him uh, publicly return. And of course, you'll see him in his humanity. Uh, and, and that will be be not lost, but it's it's that which is permanent. And then our pattern of our salvation is patterned after his glorified humanity, 1 Corinthians 15 and so on. So the incarnation is one time. There is no reincarnation. Uh, and uh, that is how the scripture you know, gives the biblical grounding to this. And it's found obviously in Hebrews chapter two speaks of his incarnation. Philippians chapter two, verses six uh, through uh, nine speaks of him. He used the very nature God assumed uh, our humanity and became human and so on. So the whole New Testament teaches the reality of the incarnation. Wow, this is such a great explanation about the uh, incarnation and the incarnation is uh, founded in the scripture has been has been told to us through the gospel writers and uh, the prophecy was in the Old Testament and the fulfillment of that prophecy in the New Testament. We don't see similarities between the gospels like Matthew, Mark, Luke. Uh, they don't portray Jesus as God, but suddenly the John appears and he writes in that gospel that he Jesus is the Son of God and be God became man. And so many critics and skeptics always argument that if God is all powerful and all knowing, then how can He become a human? And and it it seems illogical to them that how can God be uh, how Jesus can be God and man at the same time? So yeah, how do you yeah. respond to that? Well, crucial, and 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 to uh, I me, mean, obviously, when we were speaking about these issues, so I'm going to give some explanation of this. But remember, we're dealing with areas that um, are dealing with the reality of of God and all of His glory and His splendor and so on. That uh, it's not mm -hmm. as if um, you know you can always get your mind around it. I mean, I like to say to people that uh, you know when you study yourself right so you study psychology you study biology you study chemistry and so on you study things of the world uh we we don't we were amazed at just even how god made the world right uh we we don't even understand ourselves fully so we're dealing with an area of um of truth but it's also when we use the sense of mystery in the sense of mystery doesn't mean that it's you know not uh, coherent or it's contradictory it just simply means it's, it's beyond the fullness of all that we can understand. Yet what's crucial to understand about how we can make sense of how Jesus can be both truly God and truly human and how that can be simultaneously the case is that we have to work within uh, the Bible's own categories and the Bible's own presentation of this, right? So when we deal with in our, our world that we live in, right, we have all kinds of different religious views. So we have to understand um, who Jesus is in light of the biblical category. So creator-creature distinction is the most fundamental category that we have all the way from Genesis 1. So what does that mean? Why is that important? Well, God is God, right? So he is in a whole category all by himself. He's not on a scale of being. God is not just a higher instance of a, of a human or a created nature. He is uniquely who he is as the triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. 
and everything else then is created. So that when we think of the incarnation, we say, well, how do we make sense of this? Well, what we're affirming is that the Son of God in all of his deity, right? It's the person of the Son. Think of John 1.14 that we mentioned. The Word became flesh. It's not the Father who became flesh. It's not the Spirit who took on a human nature. It's the Word or the Son in all of his deity now added a second human nature. Now, it's very important to say that second human nature, right? Uh, in the incarnation, the Son of God has two natures. It's not a blended nature. It's not as if Jesus is sort of half God, half human. A lot of people think that, but that's not how the Bible is presenting this. The one who is fully God, who shares the divine nature with the Father and the Spirit, is the one who now assumes or takes to himself a second nature, and that human nature is not a divine nature, right? He's adding a human nature. So he has two natures. He remains always what he is. And he now adds to himself something that is human. And so the son of God is able now to act through both natures. Now, as we put this together, and you'll see this in the New Testament, right? His human nature doesn't become a divine nature. His divine nature doesn't become a human in that sense, or he has two natures. So that this is why later on, after Nicaea, you come to the Council of Chalcedon in 451 that really puts together for us the true deity of Christ, the true humanity of Christ. The church is very, very careful, and this is just simply true to what the Bible is teaching, is that in the incarnation, the Son of God now is able to act through both natures. The divine nature does not change. He remains always that, always what he's always been. Uh, the divine son in relation to the father and spirit. But now he is able to take to himself a human nature and act through that human nature. And that human nature is not made deity, right? He is within the limits of that human nature. So the person of the son acts through both natures. Now, there's not a contradiction here. The only contradiction would be is if there's a kind of blended nature. If somehow he's half God, half man, uh, that you would then say, well, how could he be eternal uh, in one sense? And, you know, he came to exist in another sense. Well, the reason that's not a contradiction, if there was only one nature of Christ, then it would be contradictory. But if you have two natures, right, he is eternal in that he has always, always been the divine son, uh, sharing the divine nature with the father and the spirit. He is came to exist not in his divine nature, not even in terms of the person of the Son. He came to exist in terms of the assumption of a second nature, of a human nature, so that what he is in his humanity is uh, in related to that human nature. What he is in his deity is related now to his divine nature, and it's the Son of God, the person of the Son, who is able to now act through both natures. Now, someone will say, uh, I don't know what that looks like because, you know, as humans, we are individuals that only have a human nature, right? We don't have two natures. We just are mm -hmm. simply a human who is, right, has a body and a soul and so on, right? Well, and that's true, right? That's why it's, it's hard for us to say, well, this is what it must be like to have two natures. That is, that is utterly unique, but there's nothing 
contradictory about it. But it, the only reason it's not contradictory is you have to work within the biblical categories that there is a God, there's a, the, the triune God in his divine nature that is utterly unique. That remains always what it is. The son of God in assuming a human nature is adding something different. Once you, and of course, this is where some of the heresies went. Once you blend those nature, that was a whole heresy and false teaching in the early church. Then, of course, you, you destroy both the deity of the son as well as his humanity. Uh, if you, um, you know, don't have a proper sense of creator and creature, then we cannot make sense of what it means for the word to become flesh. So that's how we understand how he is both fully God, truly God, and truly human, because he has two natures, not one, or there's not a blended, or we don't have in Christ a kind of what we say a pantheism where God and the world are sort of all intertwined with one another. No, even in the Lord Jesus, we have one who is truly God in all that he is and all he's always been that. And we have to make sense of the incarnation in biblical terms and in Christian terms, uh, which is different than other viewpoints. This isn't a naturalism. This isn't a pantheism. Uh, it is now a properly a creator creature distinction. Wow, that's really fascinating to know that Jesus is the second person of the Trinity, and that second person took the additional additional uh, nature, or we call it the human form, right? So now yeah, the, human, the best way would be to say a human nature, right? So you could say yeah. a human form, but he took a human nature. What's a human nature? He took to himself a human body, a human soul, and he, the person of the son now became what we would say the subject of that nature. So he is able to act through that nature, but his acting through that nature is not contrary to what he's always been as the divine son, because there's two natures. Mm, absolutely. So here comes the question about the, so did Jesus have an eternally a, a physical uh, body, physical appearance? Yeah, you have to be careful with when, when you ask here, did Jesus have an eternally human physical appearance? That word eternally has to be carefully thought through, right? Uh, he is the son of God, the, you know, the Lord Jesus, and that is eternal. He's eternal in his deity, right? He's eternal as the eternal son in relation to the father and spirit who is one with the father and spirit as the triune God. So he does not have a human nature that is eternal in God's plan before the incarnation takes place that all of that was going to happen. So he has a plan from eternity, but the incarnation happens in time so that Think of John 1 again, in the beginning was, and, and that phrase in the beginning goes back to Genesis, and it also speaks of eternity, right? So before there was ever a world, there was the Son of God, the Word of God in relation to the Father, in relation to God, who is God, right? So that the eternal nature of the Son, the Son is the eternal Son, just as the Father and Spirit, they're the one true eternal God. Uh, so that's what's eternal. The human nature of Christ comes in time. It's planned from eternity, but it happens in time. And that's what we celebrate at Christmas time, isn't it? We we celebrate the incarnation. We celebrate that the um, uh, even then you have the conception and what's unique is the conception. And then, of course, the birth and where the birth is described in uh, in Matthew and Luke in terms of Jesus going or Mary and Joseph going to Bethlehem and no room for them in the inn and so on. That human nature then was conceived 
nine months of uh, gestation in terms of Mary pairing and then giving birth to uh, that human nature, right? She did not give birth to the divine nature. She gave birth to his humanity. And so that mm-hmm. what is, what uh, in terms of his humanity, it's not eternal. Now it will be, he will keep that human nature forever, right? But it doesn't have an eternal beginning. It came in time and it now goes on forever. He will forever now be fully God the Son who now is incarnate or the God man, right? So when we mm-hmm. speak of his human physical appearance, he now has that forever, but he only took that to himself uh, when the incarnation took place, right? So that's where mm-hmm. that word eternal is tricky, right? So eternally, he's only the eternal divine son uh, in relation mm-hmm. to the father and spirit. His humanity came to exist, but he will have that humanity forever. So think of his humanity as our, we we come to exist, right? So we may have been, Uh, in the eternal plan of God, but we only come to exist when we are conceived and then ultimately then born, right? And uh, so, but we will live forever, right? That God will sustain us forever. Well, Christ's humanity is similar in the sense that it came to exist. The son of God, the word became flesh at the moment of the conception. And then of course, it then gives, there's the birth and you see then the man, Jesus Christ, who is also the eternal son of God. Wow, that's amazing. That So the incarnation took place, uh, it was an event, and now Jesus is eternally the divine son. Yeah, well, so, he's, always, he's always eternally, he's always been eternally the divine son, right? So son, his humanity okay. now will continue forever, but he's always, always, always eternally the divine son, yeah. So these are some contradictions. So how to deal with the contradictions in the Gospels accounts? For example, Luke, you know, uh, writes of two angels at Jesus' tomb after the resurrection. Matthew mentions an angel. So how to deal with contradictions in the Bible? Yeah, the first thing we have to deal with with contradictions, right, is is when we have the four Gospels, right? So uh, it's important to see that, first of all, they're very, very, very complementary, right? In the very fact that uh, the church put those four gospels together they did not see them as contradictory right i mean uh we, we know of of uh you know people doing things where you know if they have a blatant contradiction they probably would be concerned about that they didn't seem to think that was a problem and and we shouldn't as well so we do have to then look at this this one example we have to look at it in context and and and, and so on right so overall the resurrection accounts the gospel accounts are giving you complementary accounts they're giving jesus from slightly different angle but uh, in reporting from a slightly different angle doesn't mean that they're contradictory it means they're complementary but in the case of of matthew that speaks of one angel type of thing it's very important to see that it doesn't say one angel and one angel alone (laughs) Uh, it mentions the one angel and luke mentions two but you can have two angels, uh, and and in Matthew, just simply mentioned one of them without having to mention two, right? So you'd have a contradiction if Matthew says there was one angel and one angel alone. He doesn't say that. He just simply mentions the one angel speaking and and acting and so on. Luke mentions two, and it doesn't say, you know, that, uh, you know, he mentions the two. So it's, it, you know, that would be when we put that together, we would say there was two angels, Yet Matthew is only mentioning the one of them, but he doesn't add 
uh, alone, right? In the sense that, uh, you know, so then you'd have a flat contradiction. Right now, there's no contradiction. It's just simply Matthew is focusing on what the one angel said, not the two. Luke is mentioning stepping back and giving, well, there were two angels actually, um, and and not, you know, uh, saying anything more than that. So that's why I would say there's no contradiction. Each of them have to be read in terms of their own presentation. They're complementary. The church never saw them as contradicting one another. If they did, they would have pointed that out. And, and so the very fact that they collected them together as Holy Scripture and saw them as complementary is, is how we should approach that as well. So the, uh, these are not contradictory, but complementary. And also, the I think the omission doesn't, doesn't mean it's a contradiction. Omission of words doesn't mean it's a contradiction. That's exactly right. right. Yeah, and, and 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 you know Matthew is saying here's the one angel, but again it's not saying only one angel, right? And Luke is saying well there's mm -hmm. two, and they're and they're giving slightly different angles of it, but they're not saying flat contradictions with with one another. And over and over again, I mean, uh, you know, scholarship has has shown. I mean, many people have brought all kinds of challenges to the Bible, and over and over again those have been answered. And there's plenty of good literature. On that, I, I think of a, a, a very good book on the Gospels and the complementary nature of them that was summarized by Craig Blomberg, a New Testament scholar uh, from Denver Seminary here in the United States. And uh, it's all on the Gospel counts, the Gospel narratives. There's there's plenty of material out there that shows these are complementary but not contradictory. Mm, absolutely. So uh, I this is the last question I would like to ask. I ask every guest that the what advice would you give to the young christians or young believers and in this internet age where this you know there's an ocean of knowledge outside on the internet yeah yeah well the, the one one of the you know the, the internet gives us great advantages right i mean it exposes us to so much and you have access to so much but also it can be bewildering in the sense that you have so much information and so many contradictory viewpoints and and so on. So one has to uh, be careful, right? So the advice I would give is uh, to to you know anyone, young Christian, old Christian, or anyone in our churches, right? Is you have to be a Bible reader, right? Uh, mm -hmm. You have to start with Scripture. You have to uh, read Scripture daily. Make it a a habit. So you're not just not knowing what God's Word says. We have to be those who hide God's Word in our heart. We have to be Bible readers. We have to read. The whole Bible, I would say, minimally, you should be reading the whole Bible through once a year, right? I mean, so if one's a Christian for 10 years, you've read the Bible at least 10 times, hopefully even more, right? So you have to be a Bible reader. You have to let you know, a lot of the uh, challenges that come with the Bible is that people never read the Bible. They say, well, this says this, and you read the whole Bible as a whole story, and you realize this isn't a challenge. This doesn't contradict. I mean, this is this is how this makes sense. So be a good, good Bible reader. Study the scripture. Be involved in a local church. Uh, be involved where churches are there to teach God's word, to not just entertain or, uh, you know, do just do church for the sake of doing church. But, you know, they they open up the Bible. They teach the Bible. There's Bible study. You you work together with fellow believers and, and study things. Uh, when when questions arise and 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 they will don't duck those questions i don't be afraid of them uh, don't say well uh, that's challenging 
you know, my Christian uh, convictions and Christian faith in that. The, the Christian faith can stand up to scrutiny. It's truth of, it's the word of God and it's the truth of God, right? So, so there's plenty of good literature. So read good books, get your hands on material. So the internet also provides us with plenty of good material to read, answering objections and so on. Uh, go to other believers and say, oh, how would you handle this? And if you can't help find somebody who can give you an answer, then there is someone who who can. And that's where the church together can help us uh, to grow in faith, to understand the scripture, to be able to defend it, to proclaim it, and then really think, really be a, be a, not only a Bible reader, but read good books. Uh, you know, the, we, we have to be those who, who study. Uh, if you do any understanding of any job or profession, you're an engineer or a doctor or something, you have to study, you have to read, you have to prepare. We have a whole history of Christian thought uh, that has been given to us, uh, theologians, people from the past. We don't just stand brand new as Christians in, in 2023 or, you know, the 21st century type of thing. We, we stand on the shoulders of others who've gone before us. All of the questions that people raise have been asked before have been answered in the past. And so knowing uh, good literature, not I mean, first the scripture, but then knowing good Christian literature and books and resources, uh, be a good reader. And uh, so, and, and and I would say also, uh, you know, when you get into social media and internet is, is, is probably limit a lot of the garbage, right? Uh, just simply say, you, you can't look at everything, right? So have, be a, have a discerning eye spend more time reading good books than just simply doing social media, right? And uh, that would be some of my advice and, and turn these things into prayer, turn this into uh, work with fellow Christians and think through these areas. We're not to be just a, a an individual, you know, trying to solve all these issues. You know, that, that's what the church is for, to help us out in these areas. Wow, this is an excellent advice that, and it is very basic also that, read the word, be a part of the local church, find the resources. If you have questions, write it down and uh, get answered through many people. The resources are available on the internet. So it is really an excellent talk with you, uh, Dr. Stephen. And thank you for being on the podcast. It is such an honor to have you here on the podcast. Well, thank you very much uh, for having me on. It's it's always a joy to speak about uh, the glory of the Lord Jesus. And, and yeah, and your listeners, right? If they have questions, uh, that arise, uh, so on, you know, don't hesitate. You have my contact information. Uh, let me know, get in touch. I can give a recommendation for good literature. You can give recommendation to them as well. So let me be a help and resource, but it's been a great honor to be with you.